Well, hey, welcome to Renaissance. My name is Clay, and I am one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad that you guys uh, made it out on this uh, dreary morning. Hopefully, we'll bring a little joy and uh, blessing into your life this morning. So many years ago, uh, I was in seminary, graduate school, for people who are studying to become ministers. And every day that we were on campus, we went to chapel. And chapel was a little bit, it's kind of like a church service, but it's a little bit different than Renaissance because back then it was a little bit more traditional. For example, the chaplain, his name was Chaplain Bill. I don't even remember his last name, I just remember Chaplain Bill. He would come out with his uh, silver trumpet and he'd play the hymns and kind of go off on the little descant and that sort of thing. I actually loved some of those old hymns because the words were just so amazing and helped you to focus on God and, and who he is. But anyway, the chapel services were pretty traditional and uh, I enjoyed them every, every day that I got to go. About 500 of us would go to chapel every day and we'd just walk through the same entrance. Most of us would sit in pretty much the same seat, uh, you know, day after day. But one morning, as we're walking into the chapel, there's this older gentleman and he's kind of huddled near the side of the door there and he's dressed kind of shabbily and, you, you know, you're kind of wondering what's going on with him. And so we all kind of turned and looked walked in the chapel, sat down, and uh, Chaplain Bill comes out with his trumpet and we begin to sing uh, before the message for the morning. Well, about five minutes or so into the singing, this older gentleman kind of shuffles down the center aisle and he walks up onto the platform and everything kind of stops and we look at him and he takes off his wig and he takes off his beard and he takes off his kind of beat up old jacket and it was one of our professors who was trying to make a point. He was kind of testing us. And out of the 500 seminary students who are training to be pastors and Christian ministers and things like that, 497 of us, I think, failed that test because we walked right by this guy from who we should have seen as homeless. I would love to think, oh yeah, I knew that was my professor kind of dressed up like that. 500 essentially of us walked by this guy and didn't even stop to see how he was. And there we are going to train to be Christian ministers. And you know, we felt about this small after that. Actually, my first reaction was that was a cheap trick. Why was he trying to do that? You know, etc. But that's just me trying to justify myself. And that reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you've been around church for any length of time, Renaissance or, or really any other church, you probably heard at least one message, if not several, on the Good Samaritan. And my hope this morning is, whether this is your first time hearing the uh, story of the Good Samaritan or your 10th or 20th time hearing uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, that you're going to find something in there that helps you really to see Jesus essentially in a new light. And we'll see where we're going with that. But what I want to do is not just jump right into the parable. I want to back up three or four verses in the Gospel of Luke and actually see the context in which the parable was set because it's so important when you're trying to understand something like the parables of Jesus. You've got to see them in the context in which they were originally delivered or we kind of miss some of the key points of it. So Luke chapter 10, and uh, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this 
expert in the law. It's, it's, uh, they would view him as a lawyer, but not our kind of lawyer today. We think of lawyers as those who are experts in civil law, and you know, they do contracts and lawsuits and all sorts of other things that, uh, that lawyers do. The expert in the law there was actually a religious leader who was an expert in what we would know as the Old Testament, the Old Testament law. And so he would teach and he would help to apply to people's lives what we would know as the Old Testament law. And among those lawyers and the other Jewish religious leaders, there was this debate in those days as to what someone had to do in order to inherit eternal life or in you know, in 21st century sort of Christian parlance, how to be saved or how you know you're going to go to heaven after you die or in Jewish view, maybe inherit the kingdom of God. All sorts of different phrases like that are used. But they would have this debate among them and Jesus was viewed as a Jewish rabbi. And so this expert in the law decides he's going to test Jesus by asking him this controversial question. Jesus replies in verse 26, he says, What's written in the law? What's written in the Old Testament law? How do you read it? And I love the way Jesus does this because what he says is, you're asking me a question? I'm going to answer your question with a question. You're supposed to be an expert in the law. You tell me what the law says about what it takes to inherit eternal life. The lawyer responds and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting from two very well-known Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says, love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. So he takes these two well-known Old Testament commandments, says, essentially, if you ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you want the answer from my area of expertise. I'm the, you know, the Jewish lawyer. It's love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replies. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. You've got it. You said it. All you got to do is be totally devoted to God and love your neighbor as yourself and you're set you're going to inherit eternal life. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Great question. Because you see what's going on here is internal, you know, the, the love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's kind of internal to a large extent, or at least that would have been the way that he would have viewed it. And It's a little bit difficult to tell on the outside whether he really loves God with his whole heart. He may have actually thought that he did, but there was just a little bit of twinge of guilt or maybe a lot of twinge of guilt with regard to that love your neighbor as yourself because you see, you can tell whether somebody really loves their neighbor as themselves. If 497 of us pass by the guy lying at the entrance to the Christian seminary training ground for pastor's chapel, we know there's a little bit of problem with that love your neighbor as your self-commandment. And so this lawyer, he's in the same situation. So he wants to justify himself, feel better about himself. And so he says, so who is my neighbor? He's looking for the minimum that he can do, still meet the requirements of the law, and feel good about himself. 
And then this is where Jesus comes in and tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And a parable is a story that is true to life. It's realistic. It could have actually happened. No one's going to say that's unrealistic, although it didn't actually happen. So it's a story that didn't really happen, but it could have. And it's designed in order to make one point or, or multiple points. In this case, we'll see uh, what's going on there. So in reply, verse 30, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Very realistic scenario. The road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. There was actually a section of it that was called the Pass of Blood because that's where people, uh, a number of people had been mugged and beaten and even killed in that day. And so people didn't usually go from Jerusalem to Jericho on this road by themselves because it's a dangerous kind of situation. But apparently this guy was traveling by himself as Jesus sets it up and he's beaten up, he's robbed, and he's left for dead. So a priest happened to be going down the same road, verse 31, and when he saw the man, he passed him by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And then a seminary student came down, and he passed by on the other side. I really would like to know why the religious leaders didn't stop and ask and see, hey, what's going on here? Because the priests, they were, they were the, you know, the key religious leaders in that day, and the Levites were assistants to the priests. And so if anybody, you'd expect that these two guys are going to stop and help the man. And Jesus doesn't tell us why they don't stop, but it's pretty clear that they weren't living out the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now seems like a good time for a short literary quiz. And uh, this is actually a participatory literary quiz. We are in the middle, at the beginning of August in the summer at Renaissance, so we're going to do, do things a little bit differently this morning. So you can actually raise your hand or shout out the answer as we go through this, and I think that most of you will probably pass. Okay, in the story of Goldilocks, how many bears were there? Three, excellent. Goldilocks and the three bears. In the story with the big bad wolf, not the one that had little red riding hood in it, but the other one with the swine, how many pigs were there? Three, excellent. You guys are good? Absolutely. Okay, here's the tougher one. In the story with a troll that lived under a bridge, how many billy goats gruff tried to cross the bridge? Three, excellent. All right, there we go. Now, for the final Final question. In all three of those stories that had three characters each, which one turned out to be the hero? The third one, right? The third little pig, the third bear, the third billy goat gruff was the hero or the climax or the pinnacle of the story. And that's true in American children's literature and it's true in literature all over the world, all sorts of different cultures, all down through the ages. This pattern of threes and where the third person or the third character is the climactic one in the story, that's almost universally true. And it was true in Jesus' day as well. So when you've got the priest followed by the Levite, 
you know that there's going to be a third character who's going to come along, and you know that that third character is going to be the hero. And Jesus does not disappoint them. The third character that comes along is the hero, but it's not the kind of hero that they would expect. Because you see, in that day, priests were at the top of the social ladder. This is a very religious society, okay? A little bit different than the United States today. Very religious society. So priests are at the top of the social ladder. They're followed very closely by Levites because these are the two key religious leaders in those days. Next in line would be everyday Jews, okay? So you've got your ministers, you've got your seminary students, and then you've got your regular people in the chairs or in the pews or whatever kind of church or synagogue you know, people were going to. And so they expected that an everyday Jew was going to be the hero of the story. But Jesus decides to throw in a little twist. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, unlike the priest and unlike the Levite, he took pity on him. They're expecting one of them, an everyday Jew, to be a hero. Because you see, other than the lawyer, pretty much everybody who's listening to Jesus as he's telling this parable is an everyday Jew. And if the hero of the story had been an everyday Jew, it would have essentially, the story would have been a polemic against the religious leadership. And they would have actually liked that a lot. It would have made them feel better about themselves. But that wasn't Jesus' goal. So he chooses a, a, a Samaritan to be the hero of the story. And Samaritans were these despised, Uh, half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile. They're looked down on because ethnically they're not pure. They're looked down on because religiously they're not pure. They did, they were similar to Judaism in there, but there were some key differences. So they're looked down on in their society because they're several steps down on the social ladder. So you look, you've got the priests, you've got the Levites, the everyday Jews, followed by outcasts. These are people like prostitutes followed by tax collectors and sinners. I'm sorry, the outcasts are more people who are lame and hurt and with diseases and stuff. The tax gatherers and sinners are going to include like your IRS agents and your prostitutes who in that day kind of, they put them together. If there's any, you know, anybody fits in that category, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to, to offend anybody here. Because you know what? Jesus chooses to make the Samaritan who's below those folks Jesus chooses to make the Samaritan the hero of the story. And the shift that occurs here is the first five categories, they're all Jews, okay? Even the, the Jews who, would they, who they would view as the scum of the earth, even the drug dealers, even the gang members, they're still Jews, they're still one of us, a Samaritan. You've crossed a line there with what you're doing, Jesus We don't expect you to make the Samaritan the hero of the story. But notice what the Samaritan does. He went to the man, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, and then he put him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages. That was enough to take care of the man for probably two to three weeks. He gave it to the innkeeper, he says, Look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Here's my visa card. Charge it. 
Whatever it takes to take care of this guy, put it on my bill. And you realize this is not a good section of town. And this Samaritan, who's not a Jew, is probably giving a Jewish innkeeper his credit card. What's he doing that for? Love your neighbor as yourself. Priest didn't get it. Levite didn't get it. Lawyer didn't get it. Seminary student didn't get it. The Samaritan got it. And that's what Jesus was trying to point out. Which of these three, he says to the man, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Notice what Jesus does. He reverses the lawyer's question. The lawyer says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, who was the neighbor? Who acted like a neighbor? Who loved his neighbor as himself? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him? Jesus said, yes, go and do likewise. The lawyer wants the minimum. What's the minimum that I can do in order to meet the standard? Who can I safely ignore and still feel good about myself? I want to lower the standard as much as I can. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to lower the standard for you. We're going to jump back to verse 27, to the Old Testament passage that that the lawyer quoted to Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Not so much the way in which you love yourself, although I think that's absolutely true, but take that one step further. How would you like others to love you, go and do the same. If I'm lying on the side of the road, if I'm lying at the entrance to a seminary chapel, do I want someone to stop and help me? Absolutely. And Jesus is saying, fine, true, go and do the same. What he's essentially trying to do for the lawyer is to help the lawyer to see you don't really Love your neighbor as yourself. And the question you're asking, who is my neighbor, is evidence that you don't love your neighbor as yourself. And I think if the lawyer stopped to think about it, he would agree because otherwise he wouldn't have asked the question. And then that might even cause him to question, you know what, I don't love my neighbor as myself. Do I really love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind? And so what Jesus is trying to do is to to shake him out of his comfort zone, to wake him up and to help him to see that his heart really isn't where it ought to be and really isn't maybe where he would even like to think that it is. And at this point, though, if you're like me, you've got some questions. I'd like to ask Jesus a a, a few questions here. Like, do I have to meet the needs of everybody that I run into? I mean, think about the day and age in which we live. Communication today is so much better than it was in Jesus' day. We know about the situation in Africa with with Ebola and what's going on there. And we know about the situation in Gaza where there are hundreds of people dying. And we know about the planes uh, that have been either shot down or crashed in the last couple of weeks. These are happening in countries and on continents that the people of Jesus' day didn't even know existed. I mean, 
how can you expect me to meet all of those needs? I can't be in Gaza and Africa and, you know, here in Summit all at the same time. And I don't have the resources. I don't have enough money. I don't know how to stop the conflict in Palestine. I mean, if I did, I'd be over there doing it. I don't know how to do that. But in some sense, these people are my neighbors. How am I going to do this? And it just gets, it gets frustrating and it gets guilt-producing and it makes me feel pretty uncomfortable. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't answer these questions. He doesn't even raise these questions. Nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus deal with those kinds of questions. And I think the reason he doesn't it is, be, is precisely because he wants us to feel uncomfortable, not because he's some sort of guilt-inducing, you know, uh, religious bigot or whatever. It's because he wants to shake us out of our comfort zone. He wants to challenge us to think outside of our own myopic little box and to see the world through his eyes and to have the same desires that he has for those who are poor and hurting and bruised and broken and needy. His goal is not to make us comfortable and to make us feel better about ourselves. That's what the lawyer wanted Jesus to do. His goal is to shake us out of our comfort zone so that we can become more and more like him and we can be challenged and we can grow. I think back to my story from the chapel. Why didn't I stop and help that guy? I've got all sorts of excuses. I've had a number of years to work on these excuses, you know? I didn't want to be late, and we had rules that we had to follow, and I had about 30 seconds to get into the chapel. And if I didn't sit down in time, I was going to be late, and you can't be late for chapel to stop and help some guy, right? You know, I didn't know if he really needed help. I'd love to think that I actually recognized my professor in there, you know, but how do I know he really needed help? Because see, this is a pretty bad neighborhood where the seminary was located, and so you're always seeing guys like this, and they're always asking for money, and they're always saying that they're going to spend it on a meal, and they never spend it on a meal. They spend it on something else, and I don't want to contribute to their delinquency any further than, you know, they have to. So I've got that excuse going on. Also, I'm not trained in first aid, you know, and I don't know how to really help this guy. There's 499 other people walking, and certainly some of them are more trained and more able than I am, you know, and goes on and on and on and on. And they're all just excuses. Bottom line, I didn't love my neighbor as myself. I failed the test and it, it, was, it was wrong and I shouldn't have done that. But what that means is that I'm no better than that priest. I'm no better than that Levite. And I'm no better than that lawyer who was asking Jesus, who is my neighbor, so that he could justify himself. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think all of us have to admit there is plenty of room for improvement in the way that we love others. I can try to be a good Samaritan and I should try to be a good Samaritan and I should try to be a better Samaritan and I should grow in being a good Samaritan. But if I think that I will ever be a good enough Samaritan so that I'll be able to inherit eternal life, that I will ever love God with all my heart, 100% of who I am, and that I will 
always love my neighbor as myself, if I think that I will be good enough, I'm just kidding myself. But the challenge is, in that situation, is I either lower the standard so that I can think that I'm being good enough, but if I'm honest, I know I've lowered the standard, or I live with the guilt of knowing that no matter how hard I try, I don't measure up. And I think Jesus wants to bring us to that point with this parable. But that's not where he wants to leave us because I think there's a third option. And that third option, the key to that third option is looking for the character who appears to be missing from the parable. Remember I mentioned earlier, other than the lawyer, the people in Jesus' audience were probably everyday Jews and they expected the hero of the story to be an everyday Jew, but Jesus didn't make an everyday Jew the hero. He made a Samaritan the hero. So where's the everyday Jew? He's lying by the side of the road, having been beaten up and robbed and left for dead. And so the good Samaritan comes along and rescues that everyday Jew. And that gives us hope. Because when I realize that there is the ultimate good Samaritan, when I realize that there's one who crossed the road but not to get away from me, to get, but to get toward me, who left heaven, came down to earth, not because I deserved it, not because I was good enough, but because I was beaten, bruised, and broken, laying by the side of the road. When I realized that, that Jesus came, sacrificed himself as the ultimate good Samaritan for me, the one who doesn't love God with my whole heart all the time, who doesn't always love my neighbor as myself, when I realized that Jesus did that for me, not because I love my neighbor as myself, but in spite of the fact that I don't, because he's that kind of a loving good Samaritan. When I realize that, then I don't have to be caught between this this tension of trying to justify myself by lowering the standard or the guilt of recognizing that I don't meet the standard because I can look to the one who ultimately did meet that standard Jesus himself, and I can look to him and ask for and receive the forgiveness that I don't deserve but that I need, receive the healing that I don't deserve but that I, that I need, receive the rescue, receive the, the, the restoration of a relationship with my heavenly father that I don't deserve but I so desperately need. And that can change my life because what happens then is I no longer look at loving my neighbor as myself as my ticket to heaven, my ticket to eternal life, the way in which I earn eternal life because again, if I'm honest with myself, I have to say I don't measure up. But instead what happens is I'm so overwhelmed by the unbelievable love that God has shown me that that I then want to love 
my neighbor as myself, not out of duty, but out of desire, not because I have to, but because it's something that I want to. And so God doesn't lower the standard so that we can meet it ourselves. Instead, he meets it himself, and then by his grace, he enables us to live the way that he wants us to live. He comes down, he rescues us so that we could be restored to a relationship with him. The apostle John was Jesus' closest earthly friend while they were on earth together. And probably 30, 40 years after Jesus died, John wrote a letter to some of his friends. He'd actually written a biography of Jesus probably some years earlier than this. We know that is the Gospel of John. But John wrote three other letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, very uh, creatively named there. Um, I'm not sure that he's the one that named it that way. But he wrote a letter, and he was reflecting on, in that letter, God's incredible love for us. He was actually reflecting on some of this love God and love others uh, in that letter. And in verse 10 of chapter 4 of 1 John, he says, this is love. Not that we loved God, because we didn't, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He paid for the fact that I didn't stop to help that guy. Dear friends, verse 11, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. My love for my neighbor is not the way in which I earn God's love for me. It's an outflow of my recognition, of my understanding, of my appreciation, of my experience of God's love for me. He doesn't love me because I love others. He loves me in spite of the fact that I don't love others because that's the kind of God who he is. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. And as I understand and as I embrace that and as I appreciate that, I become more and more and more of a good Samaritan. Not in order to get right with God, but because of what God has done to make me right with him. I want to encourage you to do just one thing this week, and it's not go out and try to be a, a, a better good Samaritan. You can do that next week or the week after. This week, just take some time. Make some time, and let me encourage you to do it every day, to reflect on Jesus' love for you. And, and that's whether you've been a follower of Jesus your whole life or whether this is the first time that you're hearing anything related to this. Just take some time to reflect on Jesus' love for you. Start with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just kind of mull over that. It's in Luke chapter 10. You can find that. If you actually just Google, say, story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible, you'll find it. It's there. Google even knows it. Another thing you can do is skim through. You don't have to even read every word. Skim through the Gospel of John. Fourth Gospel, fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Just go ahead and skim through it. And every time you come to a story that looks like it might have something to do with Jesus loving somebody, just stop and read it. Maybe throughout the week, you're only going to see three or four or five of them. You don't even have to go through the whole book. But every time you do that, stop and read it. 
and just ask yourself, what do I see about Jesus' love here? What do I see about his love for the people around him? And what does that have to say about his love for me? So let me encourage you, that'll take you 5, 10, 15 minutes a day for the next 5, 6, 7 days. And as you do that, as you reflect on Jesus' unbelievable love for you, ask him to work in your heart to strengthen and grow your love for him, but also to change your heart so that when you look at the world around you and see the needs of the people around you, your love for them will grow. And and rather than minimizing the command to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're actually going to want to maximize that. We may feel a frustration because we can't help everybody, but the frustration is going to be that I want to do more, but I'm limited, as opposed to being frustrated, do I have to do more because I don't really want to? So ask God, as you see his incredible love for you, to change your heart so that you'll have a greater and greater love for those around you. Ask God to give you a love for him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a love for your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing parable. What a challenging parable because we realize we don't live up to the standard. Help us not, Father, to lower that standard. Help us not to try to justify ourselves. Help us to be willing to admit where and when and that we do fall short all the time. But I thank you, Father, that though we're lying broken and bruised and beaten up and bleeding on the road, on the side of the road. I thank you that you don't just walk by. I thank you that Jesus crossed over from heaven to earth to rescue us, to clean us up, to heal us, to clothe us, to cover us, and to restore us to a right relationship with you. And I pray that as we embrace that, we would grow both in our love for you, but also in our love for our fellow human beings, that we would become more and more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Hey, I'm glad you guys came out this morning and I hope that you have a wonderful week.